I'm Sophia Peretz. You've probably seen my name under the Our Oceania column at Marianas Variety. I'm here with Jack Doyle, and uh, we've decided to divert from our general podcast subject. We're going to talk today about U2 and U2 stories and sort of the resilience of the CNMI in response to the super typhoon that just devastated half our island. I'm here with two local guys that have a lot of stories to share about you two. Do you guys want to um, introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is Glenn Hunter. I'm a business owner, um, lived off and on out here for the last 40-some years. Uh, go ahead. Um, my name is Lenny Leon, and I have a camera. Hey! <laughs> That's and, pretty much it. <laughs> and Lenny's been collecting a bunch of uh, stories from all around the island of people and uh, the situations they, that they've been put in and the way that they have risen to the occasion. Uh, Lenny, does anything stand out in your mind, like a story that struck you that you'd like to share? Hmm. Well, um, people often ask me um, how I got into starting, you know, sharing the photos and all the stories. Um, I actually was driving over to my auntie's place in San Antonio Village, not knowing really what the island looked like. Um, I ran into that family that lost their sister. Took a photo of them, listened to them, sat with them for a few minutes, listened to them, and that's when I realized this is really, 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 like, devastating. So yeah. that's, at that time, at that moment, it was at that moment that I decided, okay, I'm gonna go out and just continue sharing all these stories as much as I can. Mm -hmm. So on your first drive to San Antonio, you ran into the family, the single casualty that happened during Typhoon U2. Right, and that was around 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, when I went there, they were still sitting in the rain, um, nowhere else to go, um, and just frozen. Like, they were sitting in the rain, frozen, not knowing what to do. They just lost their sister. They just lost everything. Mm -hmm. And when I approached them, they were almost non-responsive. So... That's when I decided, okay, I'm going to sit with them, see if they're willing to talk to me, if they're willing to speak out. After a few minutes, actually, um, just talking helped them. When they finally opened up, they appeared a lot more, like a little more weight was taken off of them. So it coaxed them out of shock a little bit, right? Um, talking about it, maybe, do you think? That's kind of what I suspect, but... And I, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that that's sort of the hope for this episode is that for the many people that still have, my auntie's friend called it YouTube brain, who are still coping with just the barrage of, of stimulation of having your home wiped out and you need to start from scratch and mitigate so many crazy circumstances, that talking can hopefully offer some healing. Mm -hmm. And so I know, Glenn, that you lost the shack in the storm. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Well, um, well, yeah, as a business owner, I, I, I did lose um, my business in the storm. But I think I just want to kind of go back and, and touch on what you just mentioned. And it's so true. It's, um, like I said, kind of comforting to people around the world when they hear, hear and see pictures and stories of the aftermath. It, it's, it, you know, of course, it, it, it's shocking and it, it maybe causes... Uh, some pain, but it's so important because we're we're way out here in the middle of the Pacific, and we're oftentimes overlooked or forgotten. 
mm-hmm. and people with ties to these islands. You know, right after the storm hit, my phone blew up. I, you know, just because I was so out there during Solar, I, I ended up becoming almost a beacon of uh, for people to reach out to to ask, like, hey, how how are things on the ground? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I met up with uh, with Lenny that day, that when he was out with his camera, mm-hmm. and um, and since then we were going around around in in in, in my mind, what's so What's so important about that is um, is giving a face to you know to 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 everything that happened and, and that hopefully gets shared and echoed around the world. And there's so many reasons why that's so important. One is because in this rebuilding and recovery process, we're going to need a lot of assistance. Mm-hmm. And it's so you know in today's world, things you know news of yesterday is like it's news gone. of last year yeah. to in, in the old days mm-hmm. and we need to keep this at the for- forefront it's so important it's so important because there is such a long road to recovery this is not something that we're going to be able to fix tomorrow or next month or heck even next year mm-hmm. um, we were still in the recovery phase Absolutely. from Sotolor which was three years ago like the long-term recovery group was just starting to wind up and close up right. the rebuilding of right. some of those destroyed homes can you tell me a little bit about the initial response to Sotolor, just to give this context, because I think part of the trauma is that when Sotolor happened, that was supposed to be, what, like a 50-year storm or something, 35-year, and then three years later, Saipan gets pummeled again. Yeah, you think that, that those are such rare occurrences, right, for these large super typhoons to hit. Uh, the, the Before Sotolor, the one I remember was we went through in... in in the 80s, I believe it was, yeah, late 80s, ty- Super Typhoon Kim. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, this is the next one, you know, that, mm-hmm. that comes after that. We'll wait another yeah. 10, 20, 30 years, and we might get another one. Mm-hmm. But the way the world is now, I think uh, they're just going to become more and more frequent, and they're just going to become more and more intense, mm-hmm. and we as a society have to learn to deal with it. So what that means is, as you said, uh, after Sotolor, uh, the response was... Um, you know, the recovery response and the relief response was slightly chaotic because it was something we hadn't experienced at that level in quite some time. Mm-hmm. And so we hope to learn from that experience, right? We hope to gain some knowledge that going forward should it occur again. And of course, sadly, I think a lot of people just really didn't expect it this soon yeah. and yeah. this much more intense because I really do believe this storm was much stronger than Sotolor, which... Uh, it's saying something. Yeah, which says something mm-hmm. considerably. Sadly, I, I don't even think we have proper measurement equipment. To That's truly my understanding that NOAA's yeah. like wind measurement equipment tops out at 180, and it's likely that the wind gusts were much, much faster than that. I would think so. And so those are you know little things like later on, not even that far later on, but something that we might want to request is to get you know proper equipment to measure these things and to know exactly what we're dealing with. But this storm, like. Like Sotolor was strong enough to bend metal. This one, mm-hmm. like you saw the flag posts in front of the main, like the the Atkins curl thing. Every single flag post, there were like ten of them, were at ninety degree angles after this storm. It was it was shocking, mm-hmm. and and those are metal flag posts that you know they don't have much wind drag, so that just goes to show. Um, my business, we had two by sixes that were were screwed into the roof, and those just snapped. They snapped like toothpicks. So. It's very important, I think, that, that we learn to gauge these storms a little bit better, better and measure them a little bit better so that that way, from a scientific standpoint, we can learn to, to deal with them a little bit better. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were saying, um, that, like, 
how it bent metal, right? The other day I cruised over by the airport and one of the hangars was all the metal studs and everything that was that are there turned into noodles. <laughs> seriously. Seriously, they're all tangled and everything. Right. And that's where the that's where I think these photos are so important. Like Lenny getting out there with his camera, taking these photos, getting these stories, what, what, you know, what we call YouTube stories from the survivors and the victims um, mm-hmm. of this storm. It's good to capture those and share them. And the, you know, of course, now nowadays social media is so important. Mm-hmm. So getting them out on things like the, the Facebook and Instagram, Instagram, getting things like this podcast out there. Um, they they also personify like, yeah, yeah. personify this storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and show that there's, you know, there's there's such a human impact that needs to be dealt with as far as relief, rebuilding, recovery. And we are coming up against sort of a lack of media. There was that Atlantic article that just came out where they're covering how no one covered YouTube, and that leaves the people of the CNMI whose lives were so disrupted, you know, to feel even more isolated in. Uh, in these like disaster zones. Um, I think the CNMI, the Marianas, right, is very fortunate that there are journalists out there um, working for agencies in Hawaii, um, like the Civil Beat, or part of um, uh, organizations that are, you know, Anita Offschneider is. Yeah, she's done amazingly in spreading the word. She actually um, kind of called out a few agencies in the U.S. about not being, you know, so aggressive about covering the cinema is so mm-hmm. super typhoon you to experience you know so you know, my hat's off to her for being a voice for us when we are you know not getting any attention basically yeah, uh, yeah. and for you too as well and you know not you too as in super typhoon too, but <laughs> you as well <laughs> well it's an important story um, I'm curious what is it like? What's the second typhoon like? And how is it different than the first when you have two and three years? From my personal experience, what, what caught me after... I, I did the same thing on the morning of the after the storm. I went out and I drove down uh, into the villages just to see the impact and the how, how actually damaging it was. And my personal like thing that when I compared the two was it didn't shock, it was shocking, right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't shock me as much as I think it, it should have because oh. I had seen so much after Sodalar as far as personal destruction of homes, of families. Mm-hmm. Um, so going through and talking to people when we were walking through the villages, I should have been more shocked. Like I know I should have. And that numb feeling or that kind of almost, it, it sounds weird if I say insensitive, but there was this feeling of not being in touch with it anymore because I, I had experienced so much through the last storm. Mm-hmm. And I remember catching it and I think I might have even shared it with Lenny. I said, man, this is so weird. I, I should be more shocked. Like, I, you know, with some of the stuff that we were seeing and some of the stuff that we were coming across and some of the stories we were reading. And numbness is actually a super common uh, response to natural disasters. Normally, like your initial shock response, yeah. right? That kind of protects you. But yeah. this was a little different. So I had okay. that with Sodalore initially, right? Mm-hmm. So, but this was... Like I've seen it, and it's it's almost like I guess a seasoned soldier or something that's gone into war or something. Mm-hmm. And maybe after you know the first time you get the shot, second mm-hmm. time you're like yeah whatever. The third time you're like I really don't care kind of thing, <laughs> which is weird. Mm-hmm. But I felt that, and I I after the first one, as Lenny said, my wife was the camera person. She was the one that was going out there and helping with relief and um, 
helping capture a lot of those stories and share them mm -hmm. with the world. And because we're so close, I got to see firsthand how much of an impact that has on an individual. Something a lot of people overlook are the people that are going out and providing relief, mm -hmm. people like the journalists that are going out and ca capturing the stories, people like Lenny that are going out and, 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 and capturing these, these photos. It has such a strong impact on you as an individual that you maybe don't feel while you're doing it, but later on it really sets in and it's a strong negative impact. I don't agree that it's a negative impact on you if we're not feeling that um, empathy. Empathy, I guess. that's yeah, exactly what it is. It's almost like it's, it's not that you don't feel it. I don't think it's that, but it's you, one thing you gotta know about Glenn is during um, the solar aftermath, him and his wife. We're not just capturing photos and videos of the um, after the post solar. Mm -hmm. They were actually at all, if not most, of the shelters, voluntary um, centers, and all that stuff. They were in it, you know? mm -hmm. so they they built immunity, and that actually I think that kind of prepared Glenn for this year, mm -hmm. for this one, if anything. I'm definitely able to um, to deal with things a lot better. Right. Um, because you do get very personal and you do get yeah. very empathetic yeah. and you do, yeah. like when you start, you know, you come across, say, a family with a newborn and you're like, oh, you know, we got to get this person some help, we got to get them a doctor, we got to, mm -hmm. and you start getting frustrated because of lack of resources or lack of outlets or lack of care. And so initially after Solar, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of me um, utilizing social media, utilizing the stories, utilizing every outlet I had to, to demand help, to demand relief, to demand um uh, supplies to demand that this story be heard. Right. This time I've, I've definitely stepped back and let a lot of other people kind of be that voice. Um, I don't know. Um, you've actually been very influential in a lot of the volunteering stuff. And st on my free time, I wasn't like I I couldn't decide what to help with. And then mm -hmm. Glenn is like sharing all these information. And that's how I was able to find where I want to be, you know, mm -hmm. at that time to help volunteer, you know, give assistance to the community as, you know, the best I can at that time. So he's still very influential. And um, well, I, I, I did. I learned. Um, yeah. I learned that a lot of people want to help. Like yeah. so many people want to help, and a lot of them just don't know how or where. And so I did initially. That was one of my focuses. Was yeah. that's what I mean by kind of taking a step back. Instead, what I did was share with them the different. Uh, volunteer groups or agencies that might be available and where to go and how to to assist mm -hmm. and that way they had that ability to say okay I, I got the time I can do something I can contribute um, yeah and you know I don't know uh, what your guys' experience is but for me I found that the majority of people who I know who live on this island are volunteering to help as well you know it's like an island of volunteers even though it's an island of, of victims of natural disaster as well that's a, it, it brings to mind, I was reading about um, this concept, community resilience, and there's all these different factors that play into it, but it's not, it's not like a community of resilient individuals who get up and fix their own house and figure it out. Like, a resilient community will bounce back much faster than a community of resilient individuals because everyone's helping each other. Everybody's trading resources where they need it, and that's, I feel like, what I see here. Um. Yes. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> today I was um walking around and I, I shared a photo with Glenn and a few other people. 
there's a Bangladesh family, but this is a family that's not from here, you know, they're migrants out of Bangladesh. There's a month old baby. Um, at the time of Super Typhoon on YouTube, that baby was seven days old. Oh, yeah. Their roof had like been pulled off their home, mm. and some local family across the street noticed that. Like, they're aware that there was a baby in that house, so they all ran in the middle of the storm and grabbed the mom and the baby and the family and brought them in. See, I feel like when I look at the level of destruction that's in some of these neighborhoods, and I think about the number of casualties, which at this point, including the aftermath, we're at two, right? I feel like it's extremely hard to understand how that could be possible when there's rubble everywhere. You know, there's tin. Completely flattened homes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think there's been a lot of people that reached in and mm -hmm. saved people. I think so. Yeah, I've heard many stories about that, of mm -hmm. neighbors helping neighbors, victims helping victims. And then there's this odd thing, you know, in today's world, again, with the way media works and journalism. Mm -hmm. The death toll is what generates the news stories, and that's a sad thing, because what they do is the same thing after Sotomayor. Everybody would ask, well, how many people died? And that kind of gauges whether it's worthy of being right, a headline yeah, right. story, which mm -hmm. is not the way it should be. Mm -hmm. It should be. There should be so much focus put in on how how we could survive something mm -hmm. this tragic and this this right. this this damaging. Yet, like you said, be a, be able to come through it um, with such a small uh, level of of loss of life, like mm -hmm. low level of loss of life. It's still it's it, this is the first time ever in my memory of a typhoon that we've had anyone perish right and it's so sad and to you know to to have heard firsthand from from Lenny about that experience it's just shocking and so that's why I think it's so much more important that we don't want that to become the norm mm -hmm. we want the other thing to be the norm that we could go through these severe storms and have no loss of life but at the same time we should be able to generate like worldwide exposure to just how big of a tragedy this is. I mean, we're in, are, are we a month out now? What is it? I, I don't know. We're yeah, close. four so weeks bad. already. And, and if, you, if you head from like the middle of this island down south, no matter how much progress we've made heading north as far as power restoration, water restoration, water and I'm thankful to all the agencies that have done that, and you're still dealing with extreme devastation down south. Like people are just now starting to get some tents for cover. Mm -hmm. um, Prior to that, they were living under makeshift tarps, pieces of tin they salvaged, um, entire homes still demolished, uh, entire neighborhoods still without running water and power. Um, I mean, these are massive. If this happened anywhere on the continental U.S., it would be unheard of to go a month without, you know, that, that, right. with that w without that being remedied in a quicker fashion. I understand we're way out in the middle of the Pacific. We have limited resources, but there are things we can put in place. There are safeguards we can put in place as a government and as a community, as a nation, uh, to make sure that we're ready to go on day one. There should be silos with food and water and reverse osmosis systems, and we shouldn't be, you know, okay, this is where the, the other hat comes on, the kind of <laughs> activist one, but um, but we learned a lot in Sodler. We really did. I was the communication uh, head for the long-term recovery group, so I was, I was privy to uh, a lot of the correspondence of what's available, what was available, what we learned was available, what we learned we could access in that aftermath. Mm -hmm. Those learnings we should have applied from day one, we, even prior to day one. Those are things 
something as simple as that, that machine they put down at fishing base, for instance, that takes seawater and turns it into fresh drinking water. There's no reason in the world that we shouldn't have four of those sitting in a warehouse, maintained properly and readily available, right. bam, as soon as that storm hits. Mm -hmm. right. There's no reason we shouldn't have generator systems for all of our water, deep water wells sitting in some warehouse with redundancy and backup generator systems and fuel and all of this stuff. We're, we're on a Pacific Island in Typhoon Alley. Come on, yes, we, we granted this was a larger storm than anybody could have ever anticipated. But that's what you know. That's what these government agencies are there for. They should be anticipating the stuff that we, as as citizens, don't normally like fully prepare for. Um, sadly, but that's what our tax money should be used for. Yeah. And so, you know, right after this storm hit, it, it was frustrating for me, and I had to shield all those frustrations that you know we're reaching out for similar stuff that we should have had in place. Mm -hmm. It was a couple weeks ago that finally the FEMA generators started coming in. Uh, for the water tanks. It was a couple weeks ago, you know, a couple weeks after the storm that the reverse osmosis system started coming in. Um, there are federal programs that are available, things like disaster food stamps. We're still, I think, a week out from those becoming available. Those are things that, come on, like, uh, those, those systems should be in place. They should be why, at the hit of a button. That's a say? good question, and that's the million-dollar question right okay. now, and that's something that our government leaders should have to answer to, mm -hmm. and, and the citizens should demand it. And I know it's still early after the storm, so people are very sensitive. Mm -hmm. There's a, a feeling of togetherness that's of sort course of been nobody necessary. wants to be yeah, yeah nobody wants to, to, to rock through. the boat or, yeah. or cause division, mm -hmm. but as citizens we, we have to make those demands. I, I know that's I've true. been making them in my own ways through back channels, you know, and, and, and sadly sometimes those come across some strong friction, which it shouldn't be. It is mm -hmm. working together when you're pointing out solutions, yeah. and people right. have to realize that it's and 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 if you criticize uh, shortcomings. But you, you you follow them up with solutions. Mm -hmm. Those are things that they should focus in on. They should do. It's for the betterment of the. Uh, it's you know, the exactly, it's constructive. Yeah. I I don't know if it's you would you could say it's uh, criticized. I mean, requesting and demanding for it is one uh, is needed. Especially um I don't know if you guys are aware, but like just last week there was some cloud buildup in over the Marshall Islands again, and usually. The pattern is when a storm is building up over the Marshall Islands, it's like everybody prepare. Mm -hmm. It's going to hit us and it's going to hit us hard. That's usually the case. Oftentimes, luckily, we have not been hit hard as much as um, in the past. And that was that, that. was only, what, three weeks away from, you know, sort of, I mean, mutually hitting us. Mm -hmm. So do we need to prepare now? Yeah, of course. Anytime right now. We're not out of typhoon season. We're, we're not out of typhoon season yet. That's the scary part about it. So no, it's not. It's not complaining. I mean, we need those. I agree with you. There, there were other instances, things like the shelters not having generators or running water right after the storm, and that went on for weeks. And 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 of course, our government might turn around and say, well, that's not true or whatever. It doesn't matter. I had the, you know, I. There, those are things that can be prepared for, and that that don't have to occur. You know what I mean? Those are. Now the basic necessities have to be in our shelters. We have to have shelters that have those basic um, facilities. And if we don't, we, we, we need to create them. Like, we need to create them. Like, relying on our school system to be the shelter system is okay if those schools are properly prepared, meaning they're not all tin roof structures, they're not all uh, lacking generators or maintained generators, you know, things like that. There, there are a bunch of things, and, and, and there are people that are you know that 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 can help with that. There are disaster experts that I think that can come out here and make sure we are more prepared on day one as a government, as a government. That I 
I totally agree with what you said earlier as a community we're very resilient and it's so awesome and it's the most it's the most amazing thing to see I shared a story after the last storm that I, I saw after this storm much more of and that is as I was going out that morning right after the storm like you said the people who had destroyed homes and had residences that were in disarray were the ones outside on the road clearing the main pathways you know what I mean like right. while their homes were destroyed behind them they were the ones you know move, trying their best to leverage to move concrete poles now this time off of the roads and um, uh, chainsaw uh, trees and move cables and stuff like that or create uh, access for neighbors to get out of their damaged homes and, and that's all a citizen you know victims helping victims basically at that stage and it happens like it's it's routine out here we don't live in a community where um, we don't have occurrences that you'll see in mainland cities or mainland areas where there's looting and there's mm -hmm. you know rising crime and there's people taking up oppor you know opportunities because of all these you know the lack of uh, power and Im Im infrastructure and stuff like that and so that's a testament to how great a community this is. And so if we have citizens that are willing to, you know, drop everything and help no matter what, and we have uh, citizens that are willing to, you know, you know, abide by the law and, you know, check themselves and check their neighbors and stuff, then we need a government that's equally as strong too. And we really have to address that. We have to have a government that that has the citizenry at the, the forefront, like the do protection that, of that. Um, the territorial status of the CNMI has anything to do with the difficulty in getting aid. Yeah, I think it does. Like I, I said, if this was anywhere else in, in this nation, I think, you know, forces would be mobilized a lot quicker. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing, but yeah, there, there are things that... Well, you know, I think of Katrina, yeah, you know, and I think of... some big shortcomings there. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if, you know, this issue, it goes all the way up to the top, you know, of just yeah. the federal government not prioritizing disaster relief and... As these disasters become more numerous, the question is, like, how can we as a population change that? Yeah, and maybe we could be a, we could be like, like, like a role model for it because we are such mm -hmm. a small and contained set of islands mm -hmm. that if they want to experiment with mm -hmm. proper emergency preparedness, like, this would be a, you know, a grand place to do it. Like, come out here and show us how to put these power lines underground. Mm -hmm. Come out here and show us how we can be, you know, develop more resilient communities. To, to natural disasters because we know it's gonna they're gonna keep coming like you said you mentioned Katrina there were there was Sandy there was like they're hitting the the continental U S too so why not um, learn how to shore things up out and here and utilize those federal yeah instead of just throwing a band aid on it sure so my my what I wonder is uh because a lot of these buildings that have been built and have been torn up were apparently at least I was talking to a local contractor who believes that many of them weren't built to code mm -hmm. they might have been built before it was just in the last six months that a new piece of legislation was passed that said you have to build everything to 2015 international building standards and there's a certain whole like layout for anywhere where there's strong winds. So that was six months ago that, the, that that got passed. And before that, the the like minimum operating level was from like the 80s. So I'm wondering when FEMA gives people money to rebuild their houses, if they're going to give them money to rebuild their houses right, mm -hmm. or if they're going to give them money to rebuild their houses in a way where they're likely to get knocked over again. That's a good question. Because these, these typhoon uh, prepped houses take three times more material, twice sure. as many man hours. Sure, and where is all the funding going to come from, right, unless the federal exactly. government ponies it up? Exactly. Because you are, like, you, you know, you mentioned things like the building structures, the peop places people are living in out here. Mm -hmm. you know, 
see then you go down to the root problem you know one of the one of the root Cause. causes out here of mm -hmm. the mass amount of homes destroyed is we have to realize we, we have a society that a large amount of our, our population lives in poverty. That's true. And so that means a lot of the structures they live in are going to be, you know, whatever they can afford. Yeah. And when you're talking about whether you have a home or you don't have a home, mm -hmm. the last thing on your mind sometimes is the structural integrity of that place. You want a roof. And yeah. it's easy for someone, you know, to say, oh, they should build their houses stronger and they should but without proper funding or access mm -hmm. to funding or if they're living in poverty and they don't even know where their next meal is going to come. Yeah, and we, we have those figures too, though. Our government knows how impoverished our citizens are. Mm -hmm. So we know this. It's not, it's no, like everybody here knows how many people are on food stamps. Everybody here knows how many people live below the poverty level. Everybody here knows, like we drive through these villages, we know the conditions of our homes and houses and our businesses. We need to start tackling that whether it's at a local or federal level in some way. Um, the proper way to do it, I don't know. Maybe mobilize like divert resources from other projects. Um, we talked about military earlier. Maybe take some of that military bu budget and shift it over to emergency preparedness where it comes in the form of, yeah, grants to... Another form of public safety for sure. Exactly, right. yeah, because then it makes it, you know, it, if those buildings are built to code and they are stronger and we again need the proper equipment to understand just exactly how massive these storms are because mm -hmm. even those codes might not take into account just how strong this storm was right. which i i really don't think they do like i because we the stuff we've seen like uh, i've been boggled like mm -hmm. you have pieces of steel metal that are wrapped around poles like 40 feet in the air or something like that it's it's unheard of i've never seen anything like this mm -hmm. and so you know, it goes down to, it just has to be the government just comprehensively addressing this at all levels. I don't know about a uh, building code, but mm -hmm. we were talking about metals being bent, metals that were made in the United States when metals were made from metal. Mm -hmm. Not like the ones that are made with aluminum today, but mm -hmm. <laughs> those are strong metals that are being bent. So, yeah, can we prepare for it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people say it's two storms, right, within three uh, three years, but it's actually three. Sure. Uh, everybody's forgetting about Mankut, which hit Rota, which just a mm -hmm. few weeks mm -hmm. way before. Absolutely right. Um, yeah, that's true. Super Typhoon U2, and that's why I'm saying, you know, preparedness even now is necessary, because mm -hmm. we don't know if it's going to be... Heck, how many great. storms just passed us by in the last few months that right. slammed into Japan, or slammed into Hong Kong, or slammed... Japan. And those were massive yeah. storms, too. Flooding in Philippines. We were those just lucky they just missed here. us by... Yeah. yeah. And I, if I'm not mistaken, what Noah said earlier this week, when they did, uh, this year when they did a presentation, we were supposed to be hit by more than 20 typhoons this year. Really? Yeah. If you count all the ones below, uh, south of us, including... Um, just anywhere northwest of the equator in the Pacific, mm -hmm. right? That would be 30 some. Yeah, from what? Do you have any, um, do either of you have like any stories that come to mind that you'd like to share? Another YouTube story, maybe? I think we're looking to Lenny because I know you've been <laughs> collecting them. I've not been collecting them. <laughs> I've, been sharing <laughs> I've just been sharing, sharing them. them. Um, yeah. uh, which one did you read? What, what, which one caught you? Um, the most recent one that I read was about uh, the teenager who was sleeping in a car to look over his, his family's property. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that one was tough. Uh, 
I, I feel guilty about that one. Like seriously, 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 feel guilty about it. Why? Because it was around three thirty in the afternoon. The kid was sleeping in the car. Um, it's just a hot, hot day, like really hot. Um, and I feel guilty about it because I took two photos, and when I got closer to him, and I took another. It woke him and really, really startled him. Oh. <laughs> and like it, it scared him. I, I've, like I didn't want to inter interfere with, I uh, interrupt his um, rest. Mm -hmm. But I kind of don't feel guilty in a way where I was able to speak with him. Um, mm -hmm. So the kid, AJ, his family during Typhoon Sotoloi three years ago, he was living in the village of Dan Dan and they lost everything like his house they were renting and his house the home was all ravaged through by Sotoloi so they moved over to Chongonkonomoa village you know um, when they were finally finally financially able to which took years right it takes years to recover financially from typhoons and then you two hit and they lost everything again but they are a very religious family and they have um, like the Holy Mary Shrine and all that stuff and you know his mom really protects us and they have other belongings that were there and they had no place to store so what he would do is when his parents go to work he'd come down to the house and just sit outside waiting till they get out and when they can secure the place again for home. Um, and it's not because there are looters, but it's because they just want to make sure if there are looters, then they would, they would be protected. It's also a sense of it's hard to leave your home, even when it's completely destroyed, you know what I mean, yeah. completely. There's just a sense. There were a lot of people like that that right. just, like as we went on to the villages, even though the home was completely destroyed, they would rather still stay there than go to the shelters or go take up a home at a you know, friend or relative's uh, house. They just wanted to stay with their home. This is their home, no matter what condition it's in. And I, I found that all over the place, like every village we went to, there was that same thing of just people staying there, doing what little they could to try and you know make it a home again. Whether it's sleeping in their car or having their kids sleep in their car while they did, you know, did some repairs or got some help. Um, yeah, one thing that your story reminded me of, Lenny, is I've seen so many um, like youngsters and teenagers just step up hmm. as well, like in response to this disaster. I've seen incredible strength in like the youth of the CNMI, particularly like high school teenagers. I know in 500 sales we have some teenagers that come in and help lifeguard. We pick up kids from the shelter and, and take them swimming for a couple hours. And these high school kids will, you know, they all get in the back of the pickup truck and I take them all home. And I see a lot of their homes and they're leveled, you know? And, uh, and I'll kind of watch them to see them see their home. And it's just no issue. They just jump out of the pickup see like, tomorrow. see you guys. <laughs> yeah, I come over to this house, there's no door, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy that yeah. my, it's so true with the, the youth that you speak of. Matter of fact, one of the first things uh, that comes to mind when you mentioned the youth was, was we do go out into we, these villages and we see those, you know, those families and the kids and they're all doing so much and they're all trying so much and the children are so strong and the youth are so strong and they're so even much more resilient than us old guys. But um, They are. 
But I remember one of Lenny's, one of the ideas he had right on, because the storm hit right before Halloween, was to kind of give back to the kids, to, to remember that. And he, he, along with some other people, came came up with this, like, just giving candies out after, you know, this Halloween, give something back to the kids and take it into the village. And so there were other groups of, and these were all younger people, too, doing mm-hmm. the giving. Yeah. But as we were there, I remember one story, because there was a family that, that was impacted, too, by this, and they came up and to, to the, the trick-or-treat thing where you're giving and, and instead of taking candy they were giving candy mm-hmm. back and I thought that was really cool oh. too I was like oh that's so awesome like but um but so many groups so many groups like there's uh, the young professionals groups the my pros groups mm-hmm. the the groups that were formed after Soul Lord that still exists like United for Saipan for core mm-hmm. um, they're all out there doing that they're all you know leaving their their broken homes and all of them are victims like all of them are mm-hmm. victims and they're all out there doing their best to help out as much as they can in whatever way it is there's people doing free movies mm-hmm. you know for the you know to give right. back a little bit to just inspire some some hope and some spirit and to give like a sense of normalcy if there is such a thing mm-hmm. um, so you got like tonight I think for instance they're doing a free movie for, for hoopaholics it's you yeah. know some basketball kids mm-hmm. um, so it is it's, that's those are the things that are you know, just really draw you into this community and you just like no matter how destroyed it is, no matter how much devastation there is, no matter how much frustrations there are, yeah. people still really care. Like especially the kids care about this island and care about their neighbors and care about each other. And and that means a whole lot. It just shows how much love there is in this community. So yeah. much love in this community. Speaking of which, I don't know how <laughs> this chain of thought came onto mind, but it was right after when I just completely emotionally like I, I thought I was emotionally done after hearing all the stories and everything. Um, people don't, yeah, people that was saying that earlier, they don't realize how impactful it is sitting with people and taking those stories and listening to what they went through and giving them that ear. Because the victims, you know, many people that suffer through the storm at, at all levels just want to be heard. Mm-hmm. They just want someone to visit them. Mm-hmm. They just want someone to sit down with them. Right. They just want someone to acknowledge them. And that's so important. All those volunteers going out, that's what they're doing. And that's so important, whether they bring relief goods or not. And so Lenny felt that. Yeah, on day five. On day yeah. five, it was, um, that, was, that was it for me. Um. <laughs> he, was, he was ready to <laughs> stop doing any of those things. No, like, I literally yeah. broke down. I, um, there's a photo on Instagram, and people are like, what is that on your computer? It's like, it's actually my tears. I was editing one photo, one story, and... Um, I didn't even realize I was crying and then I looked down and there were like tears on my laptop when I saw that it's when I saw that and realized that it's just when I like broke completely like I thought I was emotionally strong for it but man um, hearing all the stories were really really tough and I thought that was the end of my um, you know story sharing but then the next day, when I was driving out of the village, um, like I heard kids laughing. Mm-hmm. Like they were laughing, they were all enjoying. So I drove around the village and drove around, walk, walked around the village, um, trying to find it because I parked my car and I was walking around. I couldn't get through where the sun was coming from, and I got to a basketball court and there was three or four kids that were playing there, four kids. And 
noticed like the basketball court was completely, completely clean. It was sweat. <laughs> I'm not talking about just moving the tins over, moving the lumbers over, moving the branches over, but it was sweat. Like people went in there with brooms and swept the basketball court for this for kids. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke with um some of the people in the neighborhood and it's like, oh yeah, all the parents and you know teenagers and whatnot got together and cleaned up the basketball court before they started working on everything else. To give their kids a place to yeah. to be kids. To play, right. to laugh, to have fun. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So that gave me back strength. And yeah. I guess I'm back at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very important. Do uh do either of you have any thoughts you'd like to share directly with the CNMI community? Something Maybe you learned, or that struck you throughout this whole process. You want to go first? Well, <laughs> well my big thing is I, I, I do, you know, I'm, I am in contact with a lot of the people that are volunteering and the heads of the volunteer groups. And so after this storm, the one, like what he, Lenny just shared a story. And I, I'm, like, I'm so cognizant of that, of how much of an impact the people helping uh, end up feeling. So my, my, my share with the community is just make sure we take care of the people that are out there helping. And, and, and it's easy for people to forget to care for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, like near and dear to my heart, my wife really, really was impacted by like what she saw, what she did, and she was providing so much relief. You don't feel it right away, but it's almost like a, sense, uh, like a type of PTSD. It comes and hits you strong. Mm-hmm. And it hits everybody a little bit different. Some people fall into deep vats of depression. I had many friends of mine that were out there going into the village, giving water, giving medical aid, giving all this. They were strong as can be. Strong as can be, you can, like, they'd be, you know, grabbing the water, going in, going house to house, sending me notes, telling me what needs to be done. Break. Like, break hard. Break to a point where I had to reach out and ask for some professional um, help. From, from from people to, to donate their time or to allow us to purchase time so that volunteers could get um, some assistance themselves. That was going to be my question. What kind of assistance do they need? Uh, just like other victims, they need to be heard too, I think. Um, that's one thing. They also need... What, one thing that's very difficult is when you see things like the, you know, the baby that, that, that's living without a roof or something like that, it, it tugs at your heart so strong that all you want to do is help them. You want to help everybody that's in need, and you, sometimes you can't do all, you know, everything you need to do, so that has an impact. And a lot of times you spend all your, your energy and your time trying to help everybody around you, and it's, it's endless. Like, it's really endless. No matter how many times you go out, no matter how many times you drive into the villages, there's somebody else that needs help. Always, 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 always. And if, if your goal is to help everyone, and you set that as your goal, you're, you're gonna, gonna get fail. you're gonna get really, really mm-hmm. drawn down. Um, and so you almost have to to do that starfish story that someone shared. Thankfully, again, because I remembered it after Sodor, and I shared it then, the one where the kid's going along the beach and there's thousands of starfish, and he starts picking them up and throwing them into the ocean, and some old guy walks by and says, what are you doing? Don't you know that you have no effect or you have no impact on, look at how many of these starfish are out here. You're, and he said, well, I had an impact on the one I just threw back into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you got to change your perspective and just really, but, but aside from that, it's those people that are picking up the starfish and helping them out that need to be watched too. And mm-hmm. things that are out there are there are crisis counselors that now understand that um, 
the long-term recovery group. I've talked to a couple of the members of that group, and they realize that they have to keep an eye on the volunteers that are going out and the volunteers that are in these groups and heading these groups. And so m my advice to the community is, number one, be cognizant, kind of look to your neighbors, not just the ones that are you know, receiving the aid, but look to the people that are giving the aid and just make sure that they're okay, that they're you know, mentally okay and physically okay and see what, what you can do to... Uh, to help them out or offer some assistance back. That would be the one kind of main uh, thing that I remembered after that that I still feel needs to be addressed to, you know, today. And Lenny, would you have anything to add, something to say directly to the community? Everybody's got a story, right? Everybody's got a, their experience. If sharing it through social media helps you cope, do it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and if anything, it's... it's just gonna prove to the world that we really need more help than we say we do. We're Pacific Islanders and we have this thing where we hold back showing our weaknesses. We're gonna break out of that and show our emotions, you know. It's okay. We need help, but it's the truth. And for those outside the community that are hearing this call for help, what can they offer to CNMI in this moment? One, one, you know, the simplest thing they can do is share the stories. Mm -hmm. Share that there is a major, you know, natural disaster that occurred out here, and there are tons of people that need assistance. So just sharing that through all, whether it be their local media, whether it be social media, whether it be word of mouth, just that's the, that's a quick and easy thing that everybody that hears this podcast can easily do. Share this podcast. Share stories they see. Um, so so simple as as far as directly offering help of some kind or aid there are agencies the red cross salvation army i saw a group called samaritan's purse um you know they could contact fema and find out you know where donations can be made to right. and voyage has been activated yeah. from what i hear there's a volunteer organization uh a, a group of volunteer organizations they all need funds they're going to need funds to keep you know going about giving resources and and, and relief and aid and rebuilding uh after sodalor that long-term recovery group that was a part of the VOAD or basically the VOAD itself, um, you know, they, they had a big challenge of raising the funds needed to rebuild structures, to rebuild homes that, because what ends up happening is you have federal aid, you have insurance, you have all these different things, but people still fall through the cracks and somebody has to be there for them and that's going to take resources. And so anybody out there that's listening, find channels, find your local church, your local uh, Red Cross chapter, something like that, and try and earmark funds and stuff like that to send out uh, right. to help that out That was one thing I was thinking is uh, to donate, for example, to the Red Cross or something. Will that money necessarily come to the CNMI, I wonder? You know, it's hard to make sure that there are any there, local organizations with fundraisers. Yeah, there's some skeptics, right, in the U.S. who are like, um, were not all about donating to Red Cross or other big um, um, groups. Mm -hmm. And and then there's all, all those who are against, you know, putting their financial information on online, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where, that's where I, that's why I brought up VOAD is because mm -hmm. you can actually find out if your church or your community organization mm -hmm. is part company, of yeah. VOAD. So you can go through them yeah. instead. Somebody you're comfortable with, somebody right. like your, your your local church might have volunteers out here that are part of the volunteer organizations. Mm -hmm. There's also uh, a local group that was formed, the United Force Saipan and the MyPros. They're doing a lot of stuff. So if you yeah. don't want to go through one of the larger 
you know, national organizations, they can be reached, I think, online, and they got mm-hmm. donation sites out there as well. It's like right. My Pros. Yeah. My Pros has that, and that's a very legitimate local organization uh, of young uh, young professionals, mm-hmm. and they're teamed up with United for Saipan. That's basically the arm that was going out and giving relief. Um, they, you know, they can e- accept donations, and I, I think they would welcome them there right now. Um, it's it's really cool. Like some people, uh, you know, started loading water onto containers and stuff like that. I think, like, while that's great and it's nice to be sending water out here, I think what would be m- you know more impactful, and I think the Michael Kern, the the FEMA, uh, kind of the community advocate for FEMA that's out here, posted a nice thing on social media that said, uh, you know, right now I think one of the best ways you can help if you want to help physically, like, w- is is donate to one of these groups. Mm-hmm. Let them utilize those the money the best way they see fit right. as they go into the community. I know it's hard. I, I never ask for money. I, I can't. It, it hurts. So even doing this, I know. Right. But it's meaningful and it must be done. Like, go ahead. Give you know, give them. If, if, if that's going to make a difference to people, then do it. And I think it will. I, I know it will. And so, yeah. So. Well, any final thoughts from either of you? I thought that was the final thought. I guess that was the final thought. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you, too. Um, no, I'm sorry. Th- thank both of you a lot because uh, you are getting this out there, getting you know, getting these stories out there and getting this need out there. And so thank you so it's much. It's a group effort, right? It's another thing that the community is doing together because it takes a lot to share and it takes a lot to hear it and it takes a lot to put it out there. But um, I think we're all in agreement that it needs to happen. Right. And so, Glenn and Lenny, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. Yeah.